The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church 14 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC14. This is Secret Church 14, Episode 7. Cross and waking. So wake up. How does the cross wake you up? Um, from the very beginning, like in the morning you hear my voice, O Lord. So we've got the foundation laid, framework for how we're going to approach life. We set our feet in the ground in the morning. Psalm 143, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go. So how does he make us know the way we should go? And we've got all kinds of decisions we make during the day. Little decisions, big decisions. And so how does God's will work? Is God's will just generally for me to love him and love my neighbors myself? Or is God's will more specific than that? So little decisions, so you're going out for dinner, for example. Does God will that you go to one restaurant over another? Or does God not care what restaurant you go to? Or uh, when it comes to big decisions, so does God will for you to specifically marry this person? And if you don't marry that person, you're outside of God's will? Or does God just generally will that you marry a follower of Christ who's of the opposite sex? So if we're not careful, we can, we can miss or we can go to one side or the other here. We can get paralyzed thinking, well, I want to do God's will, but I don't know exactly what he wants me to do. Like, what restaurant do I go to? Or we can get passive and we think, well, God doesn't really care about the details of my day, so I'm not going to try to figure out whether or not he wants me to go to Mexican or Chinese. I'm just going to pick. So in all of this, we come to one of the most common questions that Christians ask in our culture today. What is God's will for my life? And the bad news is countless people, Christians, are confused and wondering, how do I find God's will for my life? The good news is God's will is not lost. In fact, the really good news is God desires for you and me to follow his will so much that he lives in you and me to accomplish it. And this is where I want us to see that because of the cross of Christ, the spirit of Christ in us, we have the spirit of Christ to lead us on a daily basis, which means we don't need these contemporary methods for discovering the will of God. I've listed some there, striking coincidence method, random finger method, but if, you know, open the Bible, well, God's will is there. Uh, the Lord rescued him from all his enemies. Well, that's a good word. So, or there, the North Country. Behold, those who go to the North Country have set my spirit at rest in the North Country, so I need to go north. So, I mean, just, it's just not... Good. Cast the fleece method, open door method, closed door method, still small voice. Well, is it still voice that you heard? Is it small enough? Is it still enough? Well, then maybe that's God. I want to recommend a biblical method for discovering the will of God. It's called the read your Bible method. So the primary way God reveals his will is in his word. Now, obviously this word doesn't tell you whether or not to go Mexican or Chinese or exactly who to marry or this or that, but I've just... We've got this confidence that Christ is in us. If we're giving ourselves to the will he has revealed, he's going to lead us in the things that are not specifically revealed in his word. Uh, I I put, remember the two wills of God, that's far too deep for right now. And so we're just going to skip over that part. Go down to the the reveal, God's revealed will, what he declares in his word. So what God declares in his word. He declares all kinds of different things. Be saved. He calls us to be saved, to be spirit-filled, to be filled with the Spirit. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Be filled with the Spirit and be sanctified. This is the will of God in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, your sanctification. Ultimately, be submissive. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean on your understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. So this is the key to walking in the will of God, is trusting in the leadership of God. Because follow this, knowing God's will is secondary to simply knowing God. 
So all those contemporary methods we try to come up with for discovering God's will are efforts to shortcut, short circuit the the mind of God, relationship with God. God has designed his will for our lives so that as we walk with him, we're drawn into deeper relationship with him. So we may have a big decision to make. And God could, he's obviously got the power to give us a vision or write what we need to do in the clouds in the sky, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because he's designed a process for us to seek his face in his word, in prayer, in the context of community with other brothers and sisters. And in the process, we know him more. The will of God is not a roadmap. It's a relationship whereby Christ gradually overtakes our will to become one with his will. And as we grow in that relationship, we no longer find ourselves asking, God, what, God, what is your will for my life? Instead, the question is, God, what is your will in the world? And how can I align my life every day with it? So how do I make daily decisions there? So big, small, how do I walk in the will of God? Here's some practical encouragement the Word gives us. One, so if the Word doesn't specifically spell out what to do, commune with God and worship. So do all that we've talked about at this point. Walk with God in prayer, worship from the start of the day. Set aside a time, go to a place. And then consult the word of God. So does God's revealed will in scripture prohibit doing something? Will a certain action cause you to neglect a command in God's revealed will? And if the word addresses your decision in one of those ways, then it's clear, obey the word. But if the word doesn't address that decision, then exercise wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. So pray confidently. God, I don't know what to do here. Give me wisdom. Gather information as you're praying. So it's not just, again, waiting for a vision. Like God calls us to work as we try to and grow in wisdom and make wise decisions. Gather information. Consider all your options. Seek godly counsel from other peoples. And then choose wisely. In other words... Once you've sought God's face, gone to God's word, you've asked for God's wisdom, you've done all the work that you can do, then, then do what you want. Don't stress about which restaurant to eat at. Worship God. Realize that God's word doesn't necessarily prefer Mexican over Chinese or Italian for that matter. Exercise wisdom and go eat where you want to the glory of God. When it comes to who you marry, worship God, walk with God. Realize that the Bible doesn't tell you specifically who to marry. Though it does give you a good guide for the per- kind of person you should marry, wisely look then for a member of the opposite sex who's displaying Christ-like manhood or womanhood, walking with God themselves and say to them, hey, would you like to walk alongside me? So the, the illustration that I would use, when, when my wife calls me, she, she doesn't say, uh, hey, babe, this is Heather. She had me at, hey, babe. Like there's no woman who calls me and says, hey, babe, and I think, oh, I wonder who this is. Like, that's, that would be a sign of much unhealth in relationship. So as soon as she says, hey, and she doesn't have to identify her name. The beauty is, the, the goal is for us to be walking in close relationship with God in such a way that we, we know his voice. We know his voice. It's in his word. And when it comes to decisions that we are making, we're in tune with his, his spirit. That's what we're after, in relationship with God. Two final words I'd put here as we kind of look toward the day. Surrender every single day. Surrender. Die to yourself daily. Put the blank check on the table just at the beginning of every day. This is why I think that I believe that time with the Lord and with the Father in heaven and room alone is important at the beginning of a day because you say, Lord, here's my life today. Use it however you want. And then abide throughout the day. Abide all throughout the day. So let the word of Christ dwell in you. Let, that's why memorizing it is so helpful. And I, if you're abiding in Christ and surrendering to Christ, he's not going to lead you in the wrong direction. 
So then we go, so we think through, okay, time in prayer, time in the word, uh, time eating, exercising. Okay, now off to work. So most of us spend hours every day, every week, every month in our life doing work. If you work 40 hours a week for 40 years of life, you will put in 80,000 hours at a job during your lifetime. And then if you go to college, then kindergarten to college is another 15,000 hours preparing to work. Then there's commuting on top of that. Like that's a lot of hours in your life. So how does all, how do all those hours fit in to this purpose that God has created for you in the world on a daily basis? Your work as a, in sales or as a teacher, as an engineer, whatever you do, is it just to provide food on your table or is there more to it than that? So how is your work on an everyday basis a part of God's plan for you to enjoy His grace and in relation with Him and extend His glory to the ends of the earth? I got a quote here from Greg Gilbert and Sebastian Traeger who wrote a great book on the gospel at work that I highly recommend. It's in the back of your notes. And they say, if you're like most people, you spend a significant portion of every week of your life at your job. You also spend quite a lot of time thinking about your job. What do I need to do next? How do I maximize profit? How do I solve that problem? How do I communicate this need? It may may well be that at least some of your thoughts about your job are not just about operations. They're about the meaning of it all. Why am I doing this? What's the purpose of it? And do I want to keep doing it? How is this job affecting me as a human being? Make my life better or worse? Is it all worth it? And why? These are good questions, of course. But if you're a Christian, there's another set of questions even more important. Questions that have to do with how your work fits into God's intentions for your life. Is my work shaping my character in a godly direction? How can I do my work? Not just as a way to put food on the table, but as a sold-out disciple of Jesus. What's the point of work anyway in a Christian's life? Is there any meaning to it beyond providing goods and services, making money, and providing a living for myself and my family? And why, for that matter, does God have us spend so much of our lives in doing this one particular thing? Those are good questions. And you get down to Colossians 3 and it says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. So I want you to think about your job and, and, and the purpose for which God has put you on the planet. Let's think about who God is. First, God delights in work. God works and God enjoys work. Psalm 104 says that he rejoices in his works. We see that in Genesis. God works for us and through us. You think about it, the only reason you're breathing at this moment is because God's working for you. And if he were to stop, so would you. He works for us and even the work that we do is work that he actually does through us. Great quote from Luther about that right right there. So God delights in work and God designed our work. So in Genesis 1, God created man and told him to work in the world. Chapter 2, verse 15, God put him in a garden and told him to work. So work was not a product of the fall. It was a part of creation from the very beginning. Tim Keller said, work is so foundational to our makeup that it's one of the few things we can take in significant doses of without harm. Indeed, the Bible does not say we should work one day and rest six, or that work and rest should be balanced evenly, but directs us to the opposite ration. Leisure and pleasure are great goods, but we can only take so much of them. If you ask people in nursing homes or hospitals how they're doing, you'll often hear that their main regret is that they wish they had something to do, some way to be useful to others. So we're designed by God to work, by His grace, for our good, and for His glory. So this is God. Now consider who we are. Work is a mark of our dignity. So what we do... As workers, now I'm excluding here work that would be sinful or evil in and of itself. So you might call stealing cars work, but that's not the kind of work we're talking about here. So apart from that kind of work, we're talking about work, whatever we're doing, whatever job we have, like, it's a part of our dignity. And we've we got to be careful not to think that, well, some have more dignity than others. We have a tendency to base our dignity on our occupation or according to how other people view our occupation. But to do that, it's not just biblical, unbiblical, it's ungodly. Because God has created us to work and all kinds of work display his glory and his character in the world. 
Philip Jensen asked the question, if God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. All work is human dignity. Just think about Genesis 1, Psalm 8 there. So we're stewards of creation. This is from the very beginning, Genesis 1 of the Bible. And we're developers of culture. So in our work, we are participating in what God is doing in the world to help the world thrive and flourish. Keller writes, farming takes the physical material of soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant work of art, in all these things, we're continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing, and we're all following God's pattern of creative cultural development. Oh, what a great picture. And this is where we realize this involves all of us doing all kinds of different things. Like, if all of us were pastors, that would be a horrible thing for sustenance in the world. Like, sure, we know how to teach the Bible and shepherd the church. We wouldn't know how to do anything else. If we were all salesmen and women, we wouldn't have any products to sell in the first place. If we were all police officers, we'd be safe, but we sure would be hungry. If we were all lawyers, we'd all be in trouble. So we need each other. We need every single one of each other. Much, much the way the body of Christ has different parts, we've got different parts we play in the world. I love this quote from Lester DeCoster. He says, look at the chair you're lounging in. Could you have made it for yourself? How could you get, say, the wood? Go and fell a tree? But only after first making the tools for that and putting together some kind of vehicle to haul the wood and constructing a mill to do lumber and roads to drive on from place to place. In short, a lifetime or two to make one chair. If we worked not 40, but 140 hours per week, we couldn't make for ourselves from scratch even a fraction of all the goods and services that we now call our own. Our paycheck check turns out to buy us the use of far more than we could possibly make for ourselves in the time it takes us to earn the check. Work yields far more in return upon our efforts than our particular jobs put in. Imagine that everybody quits working right now. What happens? Civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from the shelves. Gas dries up at the pumps. Streets are no longer patrolled and fires burn themselves out. Communication and transportation services end. Utilities go dead. Those who survive at all are soon huddled around campfires, sleeping in caves, clothed in raw animal hides. The difference between a wilderness and culture is simply work. You see this? All of our work is a mark of dignity. This is huge. For us not to set up some false dichotomy, some artificial distinction between some people whose work is noble than others. So pastors are more noble than bankers or missionaries more noble than telemarketers. Tyndale said, if we look externally, there's difference between washing distance and preaching the word of God. But as touching to please God, follow this. There's no difference at all. That's a biblical view of work. There's no difference when done to the honor of the Lord between preaching and washing the dishes. And say, do you really believe that preaching, washing the dishes are just as important as the glory of God? Absolutely, I believe that. You, you, you take something like house cleaning. Imagine, what if it wasn't done? Before long, there'd be germs all over the house, viruses, infections, threatening to make you sick that could eventually kill you. That's, that makes dishwashing, cleaning, fundamentally important. So that's why Kim, Tim Keller says simple phys- physical labor is God's work no less than the formulation of theological truth. All of it dignified. The problem, though, is that our work has been marred by our depravity. The disobedience of man affects his work in Genesis 3. And as a result of sin, the work was designed to be fulfilling. It's frustrating to us. The work was designed to be purposeful. It feels pointless. And Ecclesiastes is particularly depressing here. And you read through it and you're just, yeah, it's, it's depressing because it says, you know, in the end, what's the point of all this stuff that I'm doing? It's because, because much of our work feels pointless. 
The work was designed to be selfless. It becomes selfish. In other words, we start looking out for ourselves, which leads to two primary distortions of work. And this, this is what Gilbert and Traeger talk about uh, in their book. It's so helpful. One is the idolatry of work. The idolatry of work, where we overvalue work, thinking that our work is what provides us ultimate meaning. So when we spend thousands of hours doing work, we start to be tempted to look at our work as that which controls us or that which is our identity. We wrap ourselves up in our work and can't pull ourselves away from it. And this is even more dangerous when we become successful in our work because we start looking to work for things that God alone is intended to give us. Meaning, joy, identity. And in the process, we fail to see God's limits for our work. And when we fail to see God's limits for our work, we find ourselves resisting rest. We can't put our work down. We can't put our phone down. We're always checking emails, always making calls. Our thoughts go into this or that of the office. We're consumed with our work. And we see rest almost like it's an enemy. It's keeping us from doing what we want to do. And I'll, I will be the first to admit I've been totally guilty here. And I mentioned uh, just the uh, unhealth that my wife approached me with a couple of years ago. And part of it was you, you, don't, you don't put stuff down. You just you stay up all night doing this or that, thinking you got to do that. It's not healthy. It's not glorifying to God. So that's, that's one way that we can distort work. Well, then there's another opposite side of the spectrum. And some of you are already thinking, well, we don't want to just be lazy and not work hard. And you're exactly right. The other distortion of work is idleness in work. Idleness in work. Where we undervalue work, thinking that it has little to no meaning. Either we're lazy and we don't work, or we look at our work and we think, oh, it's not that important. What I do is really not that dignified. And we fail to see God's purposes for our work. We either don't work or we work and we don't care about what we're doing in our work. It's just a means to an end that we have to endure. And in the process of this, we start to prioritize retirement. So instead of resisting rest, we prioritize retirement. We prioritize rest in a sense. Our work is something we endure until we get to the weekend. And then ultimately, it's something we endure until we finally attain the goal of having, not having to work and we can retire, a concept that is totally unbiblical. And people ask me, what do you mean when you say that retirement is unbiblical? What I mean is it's not in the Bible. It's not a biblical idea at all. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not talking here about those who are physically unable to work. And I'm not talking about those who retire from a job in order to be able to do work that doesn't require a salary. So there are many Christians past a certain age who are no longer employed on a payroll somewhere, but are working to the glory of God around the world and in the community. That's, 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 that's good. That's great. It's biblical. But this idea that we have in American culture, that the goal of our life is to get to the point where we can just rest, is not biblical. It's not human. It's not what God has designed for us. We even say, well, I can't wait to get to heaven where I can rest. But even that's not true. Because when we get to heaven, there's going to be work. And at that point, you just throw your arms up and say, oh, it's never going to end. That's when we realize we're missing the point. God's created us to work by His grace for our good, for His glory. Work is a good gift from a gracious God that we will enjoy for all of eternity. We'll enjoy it. We won't have the, the distortions that come in with it in eternity, thank God. But we must not buy into the lie that our culture sells us that work is to be avoided. It's to be endured because we have to do it. No, work's a fundamental part of God's good design for us. And God desires to save us from an unbiblical view of work and redeem us to a satisfying life of work. And this is where the cross comes in. Think about how Jesus' life, death, resurrection affects the way we view work, transform our outlook and on work. Three ways. Number one, Christ's work has secured our salvation, freeing us to rest in his work as the only superior work. 
This is, this is huge. This is why Martin Luther, for example, is so passionate about all work, not just church work, being equally pleasing and honoring to God. It all went back for Luther to the discovery of the reality that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You think about it. If our works, specifically our religious works, earn us favor before God, then it only makes sense that the clergy, priests, popes, do the most noble work and have the most favor before God. Everybody else is second class in that sense. But one of the effects of the Reformation was realizing, no, if we're accepted before God based solely on faith and the finished work of Christ, then there's no work we can do to increase our status before God. Christ at the cross has secured our salvation, so we're free to rest in his work as the only superior work. So then Christ's work has secured our satisfaction, freeing us from the idolatry of work. So in Christ, through Christ, you've been reconciled to God. You've found ultimate meaning in God. Your ultimate source of joy is not in what you do, but who you know. Your identity is not your profession. Your identity is in Christ. And so in these ways, in Christ, you're free from now looking to your job to find what Christ has already purchased for you, ultimate joy and meaning and satisfaction in him. Gilbert and Traeger read, Christ's work provides an anchor for your soul. Without it, it's inevitable that you'll be blown around like a leaf by the winds of stock market gyrations, temporary successes and failures, performance reports, bosses who do or don't treat you well in your own desires, whether they're met or not. But Christ saves you from that kind of life. Will you experience frustration, discouragement, despair at work? Absolutely. It's the reality of work in a sinful world. But as soon as you do, those realities will only remind you that work is not your source of meaning and joy and satisfaction. Christ is, and he alone can provide what your soul most needs. And then Christ's work has secured our significance, freeing us from idleness and work. So Christ infuses significance and meaning and purpose into even the most menial of tasks and jobs. So that leads us to then consider our everyday jobs. So you put your faith in Christ, you're in Christ. How does that affect the way you work every day? Well, in Christ every day, we're free to worship God wholeheartedly as we work. That's why Colossians 3 says, work hard because you're serving ultimately the Lord. Whatever you do, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 10 31, do it all for the glory of God. So what you do, follow this from nine to five every day. It's not secular work. And then when you serve in the church on Sunday, that's spiritual work. No, it's all work to the glory of God, every single bit of it. See this, when you, when you write a memo at your desk, when you're talking on the phone with a customer, when you're preparing a lesson for your class, when you're selling an item, when you're serving some food, when you're making a decision, when you're leading a company, when you're placing an order, when you're hammering a nail, you're fixing a leak, you're performing a surgery, whatever you do, you're worshiping God as you work. Discipleship to Jesus is not just what you do when you have a Bible study or you're serving the soup kitchen. Yes, it's that and it's every other detail of your life on a daily basis. It's all discipleship to Jesus. So think about practical ramifications of this based on that biblical reality. So what do we do then? We work competently with excellence. We don't worship God through shoddy, lousy work. As a student at school, employee, boss, whatever, we work hard with competency because we're serving Christ. We work honorably with integrity. We work humbly with respect for those we work with. We work eagerly with joy. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, the workplace can be the most fertile ground for grumbling and complaining. Everybody can find something to complain about at work, but it doesn't honor God when we're complaining or grumbling, so don't, don't do it. I find, I find Gilbert and Traeger particularly helpful here. Listen to this quote. Do you ever experience satisfaction and enjoyment in your work? If not, it might be worth thinking about why you don't. Do you lack enjoyment in your job because you idolize it, expecting it to do things for you that only Jesus can do? 
Or is it because you've lost sight of the purpose for which God called you to work in the first place? And you become idle in your work. You don't necessarily have to enjoy the mechanics of what you do in order to find a measure of enjoyment and satisfaction in your work. Maybe your job is cleaning on the grease pits in a hydraulics factory and you work in a non-air-conditioned metal warehouse in the brutal 110-degree heat of East Texas. Hardly anyone can be expected to enjoy the mechanics of that particular job. Yet if this describes your work, you can still find satisfaction and enjoyment in it by doing your job well and knowing it, you're knowing you're doing it for the king's glory and as an expression of love for him. Isn't that a good word? Christian, in Christ, you're free to worship God wholeheartedly in whatever work you're doing. And we're free to love others selflessly in and through our work. This is part of the way we love our neighbor as ourselves. This is part of the way we, you provide for your family, which is obviously important. To not do that, you're worse than an unbeliever, 1 Timothy 5.8. And we serve our coworkers and customers. We, we better our world. I know that sounds cheesy, but it hits part of God's purpose for our work in the world. So he's commissioned us to work for the thriving and flourishing of the culture around us for his glory. And all of our jobs and tasks are part of that plan. You go back to the guy in the grease pits of the hydraulics factory. This is a guy who is serving with his life hours every week in what would, many would call a menial task in a factory so that factory can run so that it can serve society in important ways. Our, hu- our jobs are huge opportunities for loving people in the world through the different things we do. In Christ, we're free to do what we do on a daily basis to better the world around us and then to care for the needy with, with the money that we make in the process. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We're free to love others selflessly and through our work. And finally, we're free to trust God completely with our work. So work can often be a source of worry, anxiety. What's going to happen in the economy? What's going to happen in the market? What's this boss or that employee going to decide to do that's going to affect me? What if this or that happens? Going to lose my job. And this is where Proverbs 16 reminds us. Be confident in the reign of Christ. He, he's in control. He's in control of all things. Be responsible with your rest. Like it's, it's good to put the phone down, put aside the email, stop thinking about work, turn attention to other things. When we're saying that, when we do that, we're saying work does not consume me. Ultimately, this world is just fine without me working all the time. And, and then in the end, be focused on his reward. That's what I love about Colossians 3. Work hardly for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, which leads to consider the eternal effects of everyday work. We're looking forward to a new earth where everyone and everything will work perfectly. So we're not going to sit around on clouds and boring, endless daydreaming. We're going to work. But imagine we're going to work with delight and joy and meaning, no frustration, no futility, nothing to complain or grumble about, but in perfect harmony with God and with each other. We're living now then for the sake of eternity. So approach your job then, working hard to adorn the gospel of God. Work in a way that it sheds light on, on, to others, of, on Christ and you. Let him see your good work, to give glory to your Father in heaven, and work strategically to advance the mission of God. So in the place where you're, that's the beauty, the creativity of God. We're all in different places. We're working in different settings. And in those settings, we have an opportunity to build meaningful relationships with the people around us, to weave gospel threads into those conversations. And even, so think about this. Even when we think about Turkey, going to Turkey or or other places in the world where they have little to no knowledge of the gospel, there are so many opportunities for workers to go to places like Turkey. Like there are, there are pl- many places in the world, particularly among the least reached peoples in the world, that, that uh, you can't go on a Christian missionary visa there. Like a pastor can't get in, but 
But there, there are places where you can work in Turkey and Saudi Arabia and uh, numerous countries, jobs, where they'll pay you to be there to build meaningful relationships in the process and to weave gospel threads and to do disciple making there just like we're being called, commanded to do it here. So that's why I put here, weave gospel threads and engage unreached peoples through your work. Oh, what avenues there are for the spread of the gospel in the world if we would stop thinking that the default for our work has to be the United States. Like it doesn't. What if the default, if there's this many people who've never heard the gospel, what if the default's actually going and finding our jobs and using the skills and training and education we've got in other places in the world where there's very, very few Christians? Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.